0: this morning we're going to kick off a new Sunday morning sermon series. It's going to be five weeks leading up to Christmas morning. We are going to have church on Christmas morning. Uh, We'll do our holiday schedule a little bit differently, but we will have church Christmas morning. No Sunday school that day, but we'll meet together for worship, and I hope you'll be a part of that. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper that morning. I want to start this morning by introducing you to a guy that you've probably never heard of. His name is William Chatterton Dix. He was born in Bristol, England, in 1837. That's about the only picture I could find of him on the internet. It's not the best picture, uh, but he's an Englishman, lived in the 1800s. As a young man, he became very, very ill. He spent several months, they thought, on his deathbed. He was sick, he couldn't get out of bed, they didn't think he was going to recover. And during that period of prolonged sickness, he became very depressed. He was frustrated, he was discouraged. And just depressed. And one of the ways that he found relief from his depression was writing poetry and writing hymns. And so he would sit down and he would write these poems and he would write these hymns. And the best known hymn that he wrote that has been passed down to us today, we actually sang it just a little while ago, is What Child Is This? What Child Is This? And the the hook line of that song, the, the chorus line of that song, is sort of the driving question that moves the lyrics along. Just a reflection on who is this child that was born in Bethlehem. And one of the key answers that Dix gives in the hymn is, he's the Christ. This is Christ the King, Christ the Lord. And that's going to be our answer this morning, not because William Dix wrote it in a song, but because Matthew put it in his gospel. The big idea of our passage, Matthew chapter 1, is very simple. Jesus is the Christ, or another way of saying that would be to say Jesus is the Messiah. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1 every week, and we're going to find different names for Jesus, or more accurately, different titles for Jesus. And the first one we're going to talk about this morning is this idea that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Christ is a Greek word. Messiah is a Hebrew word, but they both mean the exact same thing. And so we're going to read Matthew 1. And yes, we're going to start with the genealogy and we're going to read all of these names. We're going to read all of Matthew 1 for the next five Sundays. So by the time January comes around, you guys are going to be pros on all these names. They're going to be easy for you. You're just going to be able to roll through them. You're going to know all of them. They may seem unimportant. They may seem like extra information that don't have a whole lot of meaning. We're going to talk about them just a little bit this morning, but over the next two weeks we're going to talk about different names for Jesus in Matthew 1, and all of these names are going to be important, and we're going to talk about some of them over the next few weeks. So you follow along as we read Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to read all the way to the end of this chapter. The Word of God says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, By Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim and Eliakim the father of Azer, and Azer the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Father, we're grateful for your word, and we believe that it's true, we believe that it's important, and that it has bearing on our lives today, and so we pray this morning for humility, that we would come under the authority of your word, that we would not question or doubt or explain away, but that we would listen to what the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write down. That we would think about this old, ancient story about a baby born in Bethlehem. That we would understand who this baby was, who he is, and why it matters for us today. Father, give us wisdom. Give us hearts to receive your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So from time to time... People ask me a question, one of the questions I've been asked maybe most in my life, if I just think about all the different questions I get asked, you ready for it? Are you named after Michael Landon? People ask me that question. Some of you guys don't know who Michael Landon is, you have no idea who that guy is. Some of you guys know, right, little Joe, Charles Ingalls, let's just take a vote, you like little Joe better. Then Paul Ingalls, raise your hand. Little Joe fans, I knew Chris Harrington would raise his hand. Paul Ingalls fans, oh, wow, surprising. Gary Mason, Little House on the Prairie fan? That's awesome. So the answer is yes. My mom did name me after Michael Landon, and uh, it's kind of a big deal. You may be interested to know that no other person has appeared on the cover of TV Guide more than Michael Landon except one person, Lucille Ball. Lucille Ball has the record. Michael Landon comes in a respectable second with 22 appearances on the cover of TV Guide. Those of you who don't know who Michael Landon is don't know what a TV Guide is. But it's a thing, and it's a real thing. I think it's still a thing in the paper. Maybe it's a thing. I don't know. You may also be interested to know that Michael Landon is not his real name. Kind of a bummer when you're named after a guy, right? You find out his name is not his real name. His real name, his birth name, are you ready for this? doesn't roll off the tongue like Michael Landon. Eugene Maurice Orowitz. Eugene Maurice Orowitz. And the best I can figure out, when he decided to go into acting, he got the phone book out in Brooklyn, and flipped through till he found a name and somehow he came up with Michael Landon. So there you go. You're wondering, what in the world does all of this have to do with all the names we just read and the story of Jesus being born in Matthew 1? It kind of has something to do with it. When your name is Landon, you get called lots of different things other than Landon. Uh, sometimes you get called London I've been called London a lot that's not my name but I get called London I just answer to it I won't correct you I'll just act like you got it right some people want to go with Lyndon like Lyndon Johnson the president my name is not Lyndon it's Landon and the one I get more than anything else got it all the way growing up all the time is Brandon Brandon there's a Brandon sitting over here I almost can't even look at him I just don't even like the name Brandon I've been called Brandon so many times Brandon, Brandon. Name is Landon. And I know you feel sorry for me because when I go to, you know, vacation and you try to get your name on a keychain, they don't sell Landon keychains. They sell Brandon keychains right there in the B section, section hanging up. They don't sell Landon keychains. And you remember when, I don't know if they still do it, but remember a while back, Coke was putting names on... Coke bottles and you'd look for your name, I found lots of Brandons. I had lots of Brandon Diet Cokes, no Landon Cokes. So I know that you don't feel one bit sorry for me for any of this. Here's my point. If you have name problems, right, kind of like I've had in life, I think Jesus can relate to that. I think he can sort of feel your pain with name issues and name problems, For one thing, a lot of people, I think, just assume, we hear about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, we say that all the time, a lot of people assume that's his name, like Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name, like Eugene Orowitz, or Michael Landon, or Landon Coleman, or Jesus Christ, John Doe. That's not his last name, it's not part of his name, and no one in his lifetime, when he lived on the earth, no one would have called him Jesus Christ. Almost no one would have ever used that, that name, Jesus Christ. They, they might have called him just Jesus, or they might have called him Jesus Bar-Joseph, Jesus Son of Joseph, or they might have called him Jesus of Nazareth since that's where he grew up, but nobody would have called him Jesus Christ. And so you get that square in your mind. Then there's even a bigger problem. A lot of people just assume Jesus Christ is like a, a slang word you say when you're surprised or upset. Hunter took me to a football game this last Thursday. The Cowboys won. It was amazing. It was a lot of fun. But there was a guy sitting right behind us, and I think he just thinks Jesus Christ is like slang for I'm really upset right now. It's just all through the game, over and over and over again. And I'll be honest with you, it's not just like the crazy guy at the football game. I hear church-going people say it all the time. When they're frustrated, when they're upset, when they're surprised by something, just sort of an under-the-breath utterance, that's not how we ought to use that name. That's not how we ought to think of that name. And the goal this morning in our sermon is very, very simple. I want to take this name that you've heard a thousand times, Jesus Christ, and I want to explain to you, and I want us to all be on the same page about what do we mean when we call Jesus the Christ? What do we mean when we call Jesus the Messiah? And why in the world does it have any bearing on our life today? And so we're going to start with a question. What does it mean to call Jesus the Christ, the Messiah? First thing you need to get is this. Christ is not a name. It's a title. It is not a name. It's a title. And literally translated, it means anointed one. The Greek word is Christos. The Hebrew word is Messiah depending on pronunciation. And literally what both of them mean is the anointed one. And it's talking about the idea that in the Bible, there were certain people who were literally anointed with oil. They took oil and they poured it on their head when they began their service. And to wrap your mind around this, you've got to go back in the Old Testament just a little bit. And so we're going to go back this morning and talk about a couple of ideas. The first is this. In the Old Testament, the high priest in Israel was anointed for service. The high priest, the top priest, he was anointed for service. And if you just Google the term, the anointed one, and you look at all the results in the Old Testament, a lot of them are actually talking about the high priest. Aaron, who was the first high priest, or one of the guys who came later, is talking about the anointed one, the high priest. Look what we read in Leviticus 8.12. It says, Moses poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him, to set him apart. So literally, when he got ready to serve as the high priest, they anointed him with oil. And his job as the high priest was really simple. You're in charge of all the sacrifices that are offered at the tabernacle, later at the temple. Your job is to oversee all of these sacrifices that are being offered for the sins of the people. Here's the kicker about the high priest. The guys who knew anything and paid attention at all, these high priests, they understood that what they were doing at the tabernacle and at the temple really wasn't paying for anyone's sins. They understood that all these animals they were killing wasn't really getting rid of anyone's sins. And they understood it on a couple of levels. On the first level, they knew that they were imperfect themselves. They, as the high priest, were blemished. They were sinners. We know this from Aaron's life. We know it from the other men who served. These priests, these men offering these sacrifices, were sinful men. In fact, before they could go offer a sacrifice for the people, they first had to offer sacrifices for themselves to atone for their own sins. And They also understood that this really wasn't getting rid of sin because they offered these sacrifices over and over and over again, day after day after day, year after year after year. And they understood these sacrifices are pointing us forward to somebody who's going to come. We need a great high priest. We need a true high priest. We need somebody who's going to come and give some sort of sacrifice That he doesn't need a sacrifice for himself, and he can give himself as a sacrifice for others. And I want you to understand this. In the Old Testament, the anointed one was the high priest, but he wasn't the only anointed one. In the Old Testament, another person was anointed for service, and that person was the king. The king of Israel was anointed for service in the Old Testament. And again, if you go through and you just Google or you you search in a concordance for anointed one, a lot of these references are talking about the high priest and a lot of them are talking about the king over Israel. Look what we read in 2 Samuel 2.4. The men of Judah came to Hebron and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah, meaning they literally took oil and they poured it on his head to set him apart and to consecrate him. To serve as their king. The king's job was pretty simple. He was to rule. He was to lead. He was the highest authority in all of Israel. He was to set the example and the tone for the entire nation. Just like the high priests fell short of their job, the kings over and over and over again fell short of their job. First it was Saul, then it was David, then it was Solomon, then it was Rehoboam, on and on through the list that we read Every last one of these guys fell short as a king. Many of these guys actually led the people in full-on open idolatry and worshiping pagan false gods. And there's this hope as you read through the Old Testament and you read about Saul and then you read about David and then you read about Solomon and Rehoboam and Hezekiah and Josiah and all the rest. You say, maybe this is the king we've been waiting for. No, it's not him. Maybe the next one is the one we're waiting for. Nope, wasn't him either. And they're waiting and they're looking for this true king to come. And you just sort of have this crescendo building all the way through the Old Testament. You have these men who are serving as the anointed one, the anointed high priest, the anointed king. And you're waiting on somebody to come. And you understand and I understand looking back on this Old Testament story, they're waiting for Christ. You're waiting for the one man who was the true great high priest and who was also the true king. And he takes both of these offices and he combines them into one person. You say, that's a great story. What in the world does it have to do with me today? Let me give you a couple of thoughts of application. These are in italics on your sheet. If you think Christianity is just a bunch of rules, more than likely you only see Jesus as king... And you need to learn to come to him as your high priest. You fill those in and then let's talk about it. If you see Christianity, you think of Christianity as just a bunch of rules that you need to keep. It may be that you recognize Jesus as an authority, as some sort of king. But you've got to learn to come to him as your high priest. So here's the deal. Let's take all the people in Odessa who go to church. Okay? Not the people who sleep in Sunday morning, who don't go, who don't identify as Christian. Let's take all the church-going people. And let's just poll them with an open-ended question. And the open-ended question is, you tell me, no A, B, C, D to pick from, you just, you tell me, what's Christianity all about? I'm convinced that if you threw that open-ended question to people who go to church Sunday mornings in Odessa, Texas, you would get an amazing number of answers that come back and say something to this effect. Well, you know, it's about being a good person and trying to obey the Lord and trying to do what's right and trying to, to live a good life, trying to be like Jesus. You understand if you've read the Scriptures... That our greatest need is not somebody like Jesus to come and to give us a better list of rules than what Moses gave us in the Old Testament. We need somebody to come, not just to give us the rules, but to keep the rules for us. Because the Bible says that you can try all you want. You can muster up all your spiritual energy. And your best at obeying the Lord is not good enough. And if you think Christianity is just, look, there's a bunch of rules and you try to be a good person and you try to do the right thing and you try to be nice to everyone and fair to everybody, you've totally missed this idea that Jesus is not just a king who comes and tells you what to do. He is the high priest who came and kept the rules for you and who gave his life as a sacrifice, a spotless, unblemished sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And so if you sit here and in your heart you say, look, being a Christian, you go to church, you put a little money in the box, you do this, you da-da-da-da-da, you read your Bible, you pray. It's just a bunch of things that you do. You've got to sort of get that out of your brain for a second and say, wait a minute, before anybody tells me what to do, I need somebody to do it for me and to die for me. And to take my sins on his shoulders and to die as the atoning sacrifice. You've got to sort of change your thinking. Here's the flip side of that. You ready? Let's go on to the next one. We'll skip Hebrews 2. Look at this. If you think Christianity is just a way to avoid hell, then you're only looking at Jesus as your high priest, and you've got to learn to come to him as your king. I'm equally convinced that if you took that same sample of people, right here in our town, church-going folks, and you said, tell me what being a Christian is all about, a lot of them would just sort of give you something back along the lines of, well, you want to go to heaven when you die, right? You don't want to go to hell. This is how you can have eternal life, is you trust in Jesus, you believe in Jesus, and you say the prayer, and you do the stuff, and then you get to go to heaven when you die. Everybody wants to go to heaven when they die. The problem with that is many, many, many people right where we live who have this idea of it's all about I get to go to heaven when I die— totally miss the idea that eternal life is not just something that begins when you die. It's something in the Bible that begins now. Jesus says you have eternal life now. The kingdom has come into your presence now. It's not just a future thing. And if you have that life now, you have a relationship with the Lord and you recognize he is your king as americans it's really hard for us to wrap our mind around the idea of a king because we get to have elections and we get to vote for this guy or for that person or vote this guy in or that guy out we have some control over who leads us the idea of a king is that there is one person who has ultimate and supreme authority in your life he rules over you he tells you what to do and you have the responsibility to do it And so many people right where we live have this idea, being a Christian, it's all about I get to go to heaven when I die, but they have no understanding that Jesus is the king of their life today. So let's look at these two verses. I've given you two on your outline. Let's look at the Hebrews verse first. It says, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way. It's talking about Jesus. He had to be made like us. Why? Why? So that he could become a merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. If all you have in your mind is rules, Jesus, the guy who just tells you you need to do this, that, and the other, you gotta meet this guy. You gotta meet the guy who humbled himself, who was born as a baby in the most humble of ways so that he could keep the rules that you have broken and that he could die as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. Look at this next verse from the book of Philippians. Paul says, Your attitude should be just like that of Jesus Christ, who, being in the very nature God, he was, is, and will always be God, But he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. That's Christmas. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. All of that's talking about Jesus our priest. He became like us, he died for us, death on a cross for his people. Here comes the next part. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and he gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's saying, look, Christmas time we celebrate that he became a man and took the form of a servant. And he humbled himself humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. But that's not the end of the story because God raised him from the dead and he gave him the seat above every seat, the name above every name, the position above every position. And the day is coming, Paul says, where every single knee will bow. In heaven, on the earth, under the earth, anywhere else you can find a knee, it's going to bow. And the difference in your eternity is not on that last day, will you bow? Because all will bow. The difference in your eternity, if we want to talk about eternity, is did you bow to him in this life? Did you recognize him as king in this life? Now, let me be real clear, bringing all this together. We have Jesus the high priest, we have Jesus the king. Listen to me, it's a package deal. You don't get to cut Jesus in half. And say, I'll take some of this Jesus, but I'll pass on this Jesus. If all you have in your life is rules Jesus, you don't have him. And if all you have in your life is the Jesus who gets you out of hell, this high priest who dies for you, and that's it, you don't have him. What Matthew is telling us over and over in this first chapter, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ This is the story of how Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. The birth of Jesus the Christ took place in this way. And every time you read that in the Bible, you put these two ideas together. He is the high priest who came to offer himself as a sacrifice for my sins. And he is the king who rules over all kings that demands my total and unwavering allegiance. And you can't have one of those guys without the other because there's only one Jesus. If you only have rules Jesus, you don't have him. If you only have get out of hell Jesus, you don't have him. Which leads to an interesting question. This is on your outline. If the Jews were waiting for this guy to come, the Christ... Why didn't Jesus just show up and just start telling everyone that's who he was? I don't know if you've ever read through the Gospels. Jesus almost never, almost never calls himself the Christ or the Messiah. Sometimes people even ask him point blank if that's who he is, and he just sort of dodges the question. It's almost it's a a strange thing. You find it a few places in the Gospels. For example, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and you remember God sent the angels to the shepherds, one of the things the angels said to the shepherds was, Christ has been born. But he didn't send that message to Jerusalem, to the high priest and the king and the the religious authorities and the, the movers and shakers in Jerusalem. He sent it to a bunch of nobody, anonymous shepherds. And he told them that Christ is born you got all these people asking Jesus if he's the Christ. And one of the few people that he openly says that he is the Christ to is a woman. A Samaritan woman. Out at a well with nobody else around. It's Just one lady out there. And she's sort of in this back and forth. She's confused and she says something like, Well, we know the Christ is going to come one of these days. And Jesus says, That's me. We didn't go tell the whole village. He didn't broadcast it through the countryside. He just tells one woman all by herself at the well. If this is the one they were looking for, why didn't he just broadcast it and say, I'm the one you were looking for. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. Here's the answer. The Jews were expecting a political and a military Messiah who would run the Romans out of Jerusalem. 2,000 years ago, if you'd asked any Jew in Jerusalem, what is the biggest problem that you have right now? I think the answer would have been pretty standard. They would have said, well, we've got these Romans ruling over our city, and we don't like it, and we need a Messiah to come and to save us from these guys, because these guys are the worst. What they're saying is, our biggest problem is outside of us. It's not inside of us, but it's outside of us and we need a messiah who's going to come and get rid of this external problem Jesus shows up, and he knows what they're looking for. That's their idea of a Messiah. They've been reading the Old Testament. They've ignored all of these passages that talk about the Messiah suffering, the Christ suffering, and they're holding on to all these passages that talk about him as a king, and they just say, we're looking for a political, military Savior who will get the Romans out of here. So when Jesus shows up and they ask him if he's the Messiah, he just sort of... He doesn't have much to say. Here's the application of Jesus not walking around broadcasting that he's the Messiah. You ready? As the Christ, Jesus refuses to conform to our misguided expectations. He refuses. 2,000 years ago, believe me, they were looking for the Christ. They were just totally confused about who he was going to be and what he was going to do. And Jesus refused to conform to the kind of Messiah that they wanted him to be. That was not his mission, to remove some external military power from Jerusalem. He was on a much bigger mission, to deal with the sin that was in our hearts. So he just sort of refuses to play along with their game. And can I tell you something? This idea that Jesus refuses to conform to our misguided expectations it's 100% true today you live in a place and a time where even though there's a growing trend of secular secularism most people where we live still pay some sort of lip service to Jesus do you believe in Jesus are you a christian most people will still answer in the affirmative here's a problem For me, for you, for anybody else in our town, in our state, in our nation, Jesus is not going to conform to our misguided expectations about who he is and what he ought to do in our lives. There's this idea among some that Jesus exists just to give you your best life now. He's not going to conform to your expectation that that's what he ought to do. For many, there's this idea that Jesus is the guy you go to, tr- go to when you're in trouble. When your marriage is in trouble, when you're in legal trouble, when you're in financial trouble, when you have some sort of problem, you go to this guy, and he's the one that's going to make it all better. I talk to these people all the time. They don't live with any understanding that Jesus is their king who has authority over their life or that Jesus is the high priest who died to make them holy and pure. They just want a guy who's going to fix the problem that they're in. And I got news for you. That can be your expectation of what Jesus ought to do for you and who he ought to be. He's not going to conform to that expectation. Matthew is saying to us, 2,000 years later, he's saying it to us, he's trying to beat it into our brains. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the high priest who came to die as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And he's the king who came to rule in the hearts of his people. And my expectations of what he ought to be like and your expectations of what he ought to be like have no bearing on who he really is. And my plea for us as a church family is that this month as we get ready to celebrate Christmas and all the busyness and all the stuff and all the chaos, that we take time to focus on Jesus. But here's the thing, not any Jesus will do. Because there's a lot of different Jesuses floating around out there that aren't the real guy. And my prayer is that we focus on the real guy. The Christ. The Messiah. The Messiah the priest who gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins and the king who wants to rule over our lives, not just in eternity, but today. I'm going to ask you to bow and I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you for this old story about a baby born who was more than just a baby, who was God in human flesh, who was the promised King that your people had been waiting for, the promised priest that your people had been looking for. Father, I pray for the folks in this room. My guess is that every one of us in this room have heard about the name Jesus before this morning, but I pray for those who maybe have a misguided understanding of of who he is and what he ought to do for us. Father, if we need to repent, of idolatry in our minds I pray that we would do that this morning Father for all of us who are here I pray that as we sing and as we worship and as we carry that over outside of this room as we celebrate Christmas that our hearts would be focused not on some sentimental idea of, of a baby not on some Jesus who's just a genie to make our lives better but on Jesus the Christ the Messiah the Messiah Father, be honored as we sing together. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.